This is a, an amazing chapel. I've been here before. Brian Stiller is a very good friend of mine. In fact, I visited this campus in the process of you folks buying it some years ago. But I feel very far from you guys. You're down there and up here. I wish I had taken a, a handheld mic or something so I can walk right there. But this is better for those of you who are trying to rest and have a little snooze. But I hope to wake you up before we end chapel. This is a wonderful building. And, and just congratulations to Tyndale and all of you. The last time I came three years ago, we were in the old campus. We were just about to move. And so now we're on a new campus. But this is not just amazing, it is a maze. <laughs> I am still lost around. I, every morning I try to find a cafe so I can have a quick breakfast before I go teach. I need some fuel, some food, you know. And I get lost. I go on the elevator, it doesn't go down to the basement, the B, you know. And then I get stuck and then I get worried. I say, whoops. <laughs> I pray, I press the open door and <laughs> and then it opens. And then I realize that there's no way down in the elevator. I have to walk over to the other side. But I think that by Friday, which is my last day here, I would have gotten all, all of it uh, figured out. But then I go back to California. And three years later, if I come back, or two years later to teach again, I probably will have to be <laughs> reoriented. But this is a wonderful building, and we thank God for this. I know of all the details, all the things that went into this. Brian Stiller told me the whole story of how Tyndale went from near bankruptcy to all of this in the years that have gone by. So praise God. Amen? Amen. Today, I want to share with you a message from John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. And the title of my message is, Do You Love Me More Than These? If you don't mind, let me pause for a word of prayer. I know we've already prayed, but let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. So, dear God, we thank you for Tyndale. I ask for your richest blessings for, for this place, the college and the seminary, that your Holy Spirit will continue to work deeply in the lives of faculty, staff, students, all of us, administrators, that will be drawn closer to your heart, always a heart of love, in the community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And today, dear God, we pray, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, you will speak your words straight from your heart to our hearts and touch us and open our eyes and open our hearts and our ears to receive your word that we pray will transform us to become more like Jesus. Help us to respond to you today as you touched Simon Peter so many years ago. Touch us, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This text is a familiar text that many of you know. I know that I'm preaching in a seminary chapel. Sometimes I kind of joke around. This is a, a Tyndale uh, cemetery. No, seminary. <laughs> and you know that in a seminary, sometimes we can so dice and slice the scriptures and all of our analysis and our exegesis and our hermeneutics that we lose the power of what God wants to say straight from his heart to us. I trust this will not happen here at Tyndale. You know that I teach at Fuller and we do a lot of that slicing and dicing because we take scholarship very seriously there, so do you here. But I want you all to know, and I'm saying this from my heart, I really enjoy teaching here at Tyndale. So today I want to share with you this word from John chapter 21, a familiar passage. I know that I speak to some theologians here, you all know the Greek words and so on, I'm not going to go into all of that. You all know from Bible commentaries on the Gospel of John, and the one that I am using a lot is from my good friend Frederick Dale Bruner. He wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John a few years ago. It's an excellent commentary. And I'm going through an expository series of messages from the Gospel of John in my church. 
And this is the second year. I will take three to four years to finish the whole Gospel of John verse by verse. You know about agape and phileo. You know about the different Greek words for the word love, the different Greek words for the word lambs and sheep. I'm not going to go into all that because the New Testament scholars, the experts on the Johannine literature will tell you that we cannot make too much a big deal out of agape versus phileo, okay? That we don't need to do that because in the Gospel of John, those two words sometimes are used synonymously. So the main part of this message is not about Jesus changing the words that he used with Peter and so on and coming down to his level and so on. We won't go there today. We just want to hear straight and clear what Jesus really meant and what Jesus really means to tell us today. So let's go through the text verse by verse, okay? When they had finished eating, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, and they were eating. Another gospel, it says that Jesus ate a fish. You know, some of my Chinese uh, parishioners in my Chinese-American church asked me, hey, Pastor Ten, Dr. Ten, do you think we'll be eating in heaven? Will there be dim sum in heaven? You know? And I say, well, just read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. And Randy Alcorn, by the way, his book, Heaven, is one of the best around, but he speculates a lot. And one of the questions that he has is, uh, will there be scuba diving in heaven? And he says, definitely yes, <laughs> because he's an avid scuba diver, but you don't need the oxygen tank. <laughs> So I tell people there probably will be dim sum in heaven, but you don't have to go to the toilet. <laughs> I don't know. Heaven is a wonderful place. You ain't seen nothing yet. There's so much to come. Read the book Heaven if you want to see more of that. You know what I suddenly realized? You don't have a clock in this chapel. That's dangerous for a preacher like me. I usually preach 45-minute sermons, so that's why I took my watch out. My watch is 45 minutes fast. <laughs> so we'll try to keep time. When he had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's the only time Jesus uses this, all these words. The subsequent two times he leaves behind the more than these. But we have to pause for a moment because it's in this first uh, question that Jesus asked Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? What does the more than these mean? Again, you read the commentaries, they'll suggest at least three possible versions or uh, interpretations of this um, line that says more than these. Jesus could have meant, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these things? Meaning your fishing gear and your fishing career and all these things that you have. Do you love me more than your career, more than these things that you've accumulated over the years professionally? Do you love me more than these things? Or you could have meant, do you love me more than these people? Your gang, your peers, your in-group, see? Your colleagues. Do you love me more than these people? And there's a question too that we should ask ourselves. Do we love Jesus more than our profession? Do we love Jesus more than our peers and our group and the people that we love? The third possible meaning is that Jesus might have meant, do you love me more than these people love me? Peter, do you love me more than John loves me? Do you love me more than James loves me? Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Or you can say that Jesus meant all three. We don't know for sure. He didn't specify. He just told Peter, do you Love me more than these. And then Peter went on to say, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed 
my lambs. Dil Brunner suggests that this was not only a restoration service for Simon Peter, who had just earlier on denied Jesus three times, after boasting that he will not deny him at all or disown him, that even if all the disciples take off and flake out, he would still be loyal to Jesus. And he flaked out three times. He denied Christ three times. And remember, this was still weighing very heavily on his heart and on his conscience. Peter felt really badly about this. You know, he went, the Bible tells us he went out and wept bitterly and in repentance. That's the difference between him and Judas Iscariot. But we won't get into that comparison today. We don't have time for that. So not only is this a restoration service for Peter, a kind of inner healing for him. It's very interesting, isn't it? Jesus asked him this question to give him a chance to affirm his love for Jesus again three times because he had denied Christ three times, you see. Three and three. See, Jesus is the master psychologist and therapist. He knew that Peter needed the healing of his memories and he went over each of these times with him in this text and context. But Dilbruno also suggests that this was not just a restoration inner healing service for, 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 for um, Peter, but this was an ordination service for Peter. This was a commissioning of Peter to be the shepherd of Jesus' sheep because Jesus then said, after Peter said, Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Feed them with the word. Feed them with my presence. Then again, a second time Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said a second time, take care of my sheep. In other words, tend my sheep, shepherd them, nurture them, take good care of my sheep. Delbrona says that what Jesus is saying is, please, really take good care of these people that I've given unto you. Shepherd my sheep. And you know that Jesus is called the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd in Scripture. Jesus was not only ordaining and commissioning Peter into his ministry, into his service, but also to take on the very ministry of Jesus himself, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. What a tremendous honor. What a tremendous privilege. What a tremendous calling. What a tremendous reaffirmation of Peter despite all of his failures and the three denials of Jesus. And now he has a chance to have, as William Barclay puts it, three declarations of his love for Jesus to replace and heal the previous three denials of Jesus, not so long before this event. Then in verse 17, the third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? By this time, Peter was hurt or grieved. But this hurt and grieving was a good hurt. I think at that moment, Peter suddenly realized, wow, the master therapist himself, the master healer himself, the physician of the soul himself is doing deep soul work in me. He was hurt because he remembered, three times, Lord, you're asking me, three times I denied you. Grieved, sorry, sadness, repentance. But I believe that in that hurt, a good hurt, in that grief, a good grief, a necessary grief, perhaps even with some tears we don't know, Peter realized that Jesus was doing deep inner healing of his soul. Peter was hurt, grieved, because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And then he said, and I think Peter was very, very 
humbled and humbled by this time. Lord, you know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. No boasting, no all that stuff that impulsive Peter used to do before. This time, humbly, quietly, Lord, you know all things, Lord. You know I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. You see, commissioning service or not, call to ministry or not, always when Jesus calls us to minister in his kingdom, it is the shepherd model. Now, I know that you know, in Toronto as well as in LA and many other big cities, there are mega churches, there are churches with two, three, four thousand people, 10,000, 20,000, that somehow in the running of a church, you need to have a little bit of a CEO model if you want the church to run smoothly. The church is partly an organization. I understand all that. But I believe that today, in our Christian circles, we have overemphasized leadership. We have overemphasized the CEO model of leadership and pastoring. And I speak as a senior pastor. My church is not that huge. We have about 500 people. We've planted five other churches in our 50-over years history. If you put all of our churches together in the LA area, we have about 2,700 people. It would have been a mega church, but we decided to church plant rather than keep everybody together. It doesn't matter what. My church is not that big, but there's still several hundred, several hundred people to take care of. I have several pastoral staff uh, on, on our staff. So some of the administrative leadership, some of that, that, that CEO stuff, that organizational stuff, that, that, that systematic and systemic stuff has to be done. I understand all that. But my heart grieves because I believe the heart of God grieves that today most of the leadership models we have in the church are after the world. MBA models from Harvard. Okay? And the CEO model. You notice that Jesus did not call Peter to be a CEO. He called him to be a shepherd. He said, take care of my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. So the systematic exposition of Scripture, the teaching of the Word of God as spiritual food for the flock, you know, the caring, the pastoral care and visitation of the flock, in small groups, in one-on-one, visiting families, all those things that a pastor does as a shepherd are crucial. The calling to pastoral ministry must never, ever negate that or replace that. You can do some CEO stuff, but don't be under the impression that this is what it's all about. Because ultimately, the church is not just an organization. The church is an organism that consists of living cells, living people. That's why Dale Brunner says what Jesus is saying, that Peter, please, take good care of these people that I'm giving to you. People. Living cells, not just numbers in a corporate structure. Very important for us to remember that. And then the text goes on. After Jesus tells him the third time, feed my sheep, commissioning him, restoring him, affirming him. Three declarations, three affirmations for the three denials. Very truly I tell you, Jesus went on to say, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands And someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And verse 19 explains that a little bit more. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Hmm? And you know that tradition tells us that Peter was crucified like Jesus, but unlike Jesus, upside down. He did not consider himself worthy to be crucified right side up. He was crucified upside down. Died a martyr just like Jesus. Jesus said to him, follow me. 
follow me. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about others. Don't compare. Don't contrast. Don't condemn. Don't command. As Paul Maxwell says in his commentary, stop doing all this comparison stuff. Stop this competitiveness because that's not part of the kingdom. The kingdom is about collaboration. The kingdom is about cooperation. The kingdom is about oneness, unity, love, not about competition. That's in the world. But in God's kingdom, it's about collaboration and cooperation and honoring others more than ourselves, as Philippians tells us. So Peter was told to follow Jesus, and he did, all the way to his own cross, crucified upside down. Interestingly, that Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Just as in Jesus' experience and example, Peter also followed likewise. You see, the Bible has this cruciform center and focus, always. The glory of God is most revealed in the cross. The way of Jesus is always the way of the cross. I'm so glad that at this chapel and in this chapel, there's a huge cross before you. You know, we all want to do great things for God. We come to Tyndale, we go to Fuller, we get the best training possible, and we want to go into the uh, mission field, or we want to go into pastoral work, and we want to go into the kingdom of God work, and God's uh, uh, fields are white unto harvest, and we all, if we're not careful, want to do great things for God. I wrote a book some years ago that, that um, I have a copy of, but this is the copy I gave to my mother before she died. It's called Full Service. This book came out in 2006 that Baker published. This is the deepest book I've read, written to date. I've written quite a number of books, but this one I, read, I wrote with many tears. Before I wrote this book, God laid it upon my heart to really uh, see his own heart that was broken and grieved by all this preoccupation that Christian leaders and pastors and, and institutional leaders had to do great things for God. And, and this whole overemphasis on leadership, especially of the CEO type, it broke the heart of God. And God spoke to me quite clearly. I want you to write a book on servanthood. And not even servant leadership. And people come up to me nowadays from time to time and say, Dr. Tan, this is a really good book. Thank you for your book on servant leadership. And I cringe. Because this is not a book on servant leadership. This book is very critical of some of the, the, the world's models of leadership, including so-called servant leadership. How about just servanthood? Why does servanthood always have to be related or connected to leadership? As if servanthood is not good enough. It has to be servant leadership. Can we just forget about leadership for a while? Look at the Bible carefully and you'll find that there's a lot more of teaching on servanthood and discipleship and loving God and loving others and knowing Christ and making Him known than on leadership. We have an Old Testament scholar at uh, Fuller. If I mention his name, you all will know him. If I don't mention his name, you all will know him. <laughs> okay? He's very well known. Some years ago, we wrote a fresh shrift for one of our uh, board of trustees, chairperson for a long time, he's long retired, Max Dupree. We, 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 we wrote a book on, on um, uh, leadership for him, the three faces of leadership. And this Old Testament scholar was going to write a chapter, and I wrote a chapter too. My chapter was on servanthood, not servant leadership. So he was going to write a chapter, and he was going to en entitle his chapter, Leadership is a Sin. <laughs> and he decided not to cause so much ruckus and, and controversy. He withdrew his chapter, and he, he doesn't have a contribution to the book now. But he meant it, half kiddingly, half seriously, okay? Because there were people at Fuller and elsewhere who will say things like, from the book of Genesis all the way through the 66 canonical inspired books of the Bible to the book of Revelation, every book in the Bible is a textbook 
on leadership. And he said, that's utter rubbish. It's not. Not every book in the Bible is a textbook on leadership. In fact, he believes that servanthood is a much more predominant theme through the whole of Scripture than leadership. And in this text, that resonates again. Jesus calls Peter to a life of shepherding, of servanthood, of sacrificial love for his sheep, you see. You know? And Jesus tells us to do the, the same thing. So as I close, I want to just share this with you, that we be very careful and perhaps even repentant of this whole preoccupation with what can be called unsanctified ambition. We say we seek God's kingdom first, we want to build up God's kingdom, but more often than not, we're building up our own kingdom. And so in my book, I made a little saying or dictum uh, in one of the pages there, in my conclusions, that don't try so hard to do great things for God. Simply do things for a great God. It's up to the great God what He wants you to do. The great God might tell you to do nothing for a while, to be in the wilderness with Him because you're too busy. The great God will more often than not call you and me to do small things with great love, which if you understand 1 Corinthians 13, that's the real great thing. Mother Teresa once said, None of us can do any great things, only small things with great love. Because when you do small things with great love, the Holy Spirit transforms that into a truly, eternally great thing. And then sometimes God will ask us to do a so-called great thing, the big things that we're all so preoccupied and obsessed with, unfortunately, following the world. Sometimes, once in a while, God will call a pastor, for example, to grow a church from 50 to 500 to 5,000 in five years. That's what you hear in all the leadership conferences all the successful pastors. I once attended a, a leadership conference in, 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 in San Diego some years ago, a pastor's conference. And this person was giving all the secrets of how he grew his church from 50 to 500 to 5,000 in about five years. And he had a sheet out there with all the P's there, you know. And one of the biggest P's that he was emphasizing is parking, 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 parking. No parking, no church growth. Parking, big church growth. That also is not necessarily true. So I controlled myself. It was a two-day seminar and not 200 pastors there. But this, about during the break of the first or second day, I could not control myself anymore. I went straight up to him and said, Sir, thank you for all the practical things you're teaching us. But I'm just very puzzled why the P of prayer is not on your list. And he said, Oh, Dr. Tan, it's assumed I say, never, ever assume prayer. That's the last thing that the flesh will ever want to do. Prayer must be number one because God must be number one. And he agreed with me. And after the break, he was gracious. He says, Professor Tanya from Fuller has given me some feedback, and I think we can revise this list and put the P of prayer first and parking second. <laughs> and I put parking last. <laughs> I don't want to be too critical, folks, but this is important. This is from the heart of God. We've got to go back to the simplicity and the humility of the cross and the gospel. We have to follow the servanthood of Jesus Christ. Humble, loving, broken servanthood. Bill Hybels used to say and still says, I think, in his leadership summits, that the church is the hope of the world and leaders are the hope of the church. In my book, I rephrase that to read, and I believe biblically more accurately that Jesus Christ through the church is the hope of the world and servants are the hope of the church. 
Because if you have leaders who are not servants, leaders who are not founded on discipleship and servanthood first, the church is in serious trouble. And that's why many churches are in serious trouble. They're being led by pastors who care more about doing great things for God than simply doing things for a great God and leaving the results to God because He is God. So let's pull all of this together as I close. N.T. Wright, in his simple, uh, everyday kind of commentary for the uh, uh, New Testament, says this. Here is the secret of all Christian ministry, yours and mine, lay and ordain, full-time or part-time. It's the secret of everything, from being a quiet back row member of a prayer group to being a platform speaker at huge, huge rallies and conferences. If you're going to do any single solitary thing as a follower and servant of Jesus, this is what it's built on. Somewhere deep down inside, there is a love for Jesus. And though you've let him down enough times, he wants to find that love, to give you a chance to express it, to heal the hurts and failures of the past, and give you new work to do, unquote commentary on this text. And finally, as I end, I want to share with you a few words from another author by the name of Aaron Chambers, C-H-A-M-B-E-R-S. Excuse me. Aaron Chambers. He wrote a book a couple of years ago entitled Devoted. Isn't it time to fall more in love with Jesus? In 2014, Nef Press published this. Devoted. Isn't it time to fall more in love with Jesus? It's a book on discipleship. And he really emphasizes that discipleship is not about a curriculum, not about small groups, not about this and that. It's about falling in love with Jesus. So let me read this as a conclusion to the text that we've just read. Keeping in mind again Jesus' question to you and to me afresh this afternoon. Do you love me more than these? Or more simply, do you love me more? Sorry, do you love me? And then again, do you love me? This is what Aaron Chambers says. I believe true discipleship is not about what you do, it's about whom you love. It's not about religion, it's about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about obligation to Christ, it's about affection for Christ. It's not about following a plan, it's about falling more in love with Jesus. It's not about duty, it's about devotion. It's not just about confessing our faith, it's also about confessing our love. And it's not about leading converts through 10 simple steps for becoming a better disciple. It's about raising up a new generation of devotees who explain each step of faith by boldly proclaiming, I just love Jesus. Give in to the love of your life. Again, it's not a plan or a prescription or a program. It's a call, a timely invitation to fall more in love with Jesus. After all, being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily an issue of duty but of devotion. Jesus didn't ask Peter, how many chapters of the Torah did you read today? Or, are you attending services at the synagogue each week? Or, did you give your tithe today? No. Jesus asked Peter the same question he asks you and me today. Do you love me? So devotee, remember the key to developing your relation with Jesus as his disciple can be found in Peter's answer to Christ's question. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It's love. It's all about love. Always has been, 
and always will be. This is the key to developing your relationship with Jesus as his disciple. Devoted love. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's pray. So, dear Lord Jesus, we hear your question very clearly today, the one that you asked Simon Peter in our text. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Lord, you know all things. We are frail, fallen, fragile human beings, sinful We've failed you so many times. We've denied you more than Peter had. But thank you, Lord, that you still love us. You want to restore us. You want to ordain and commission us afresh into the ministry of being shepherds for you. And so we thank you that you never give up on us. You know all things, Lord. You know, despite all of our weaknesses and failures, deep within, we do love you, Lord. So help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in your ways and to feed your flock, to take care of your sheep, to feed your lambs as you feed us first. Forgive us for being guilty of what A.W. Tozer has said, that we so often are so preoccupied with the work of the Lord that we forget the Lord of the work. Today, we do not want to forget you, Lord. We come to you. We recommit our lives to you and we ask you to lead us on as our shepherd. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the community of the Trinity, the eternal community of love for loving us so much and never letting us go. Thank you. We love you. We worship you. We bow before you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise for the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his face of favor toward each one of you and give you peace. Amen and amen. God bless you. Go in peace. <laughs>